back. I hope everybody had a, a joyful Thanksgiving. Uh, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to introduce our speaker um, uh, this morning, uh, Dr. Dan Doriani. Uh, Dr. Doriani has served in a number of pastoral and academic roles, and since 2013, he has served as a professor of theology and vice president of strategic academic initiatives at Covenant Theological Seminary. He earned his MDiv and PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary and an STM from Yale University, which if you don't know, it's the coolest sounding um, degree I think you can earn. It is the Master of Sacred Theology. Uh, he has written, edited, compiled, and contributed to many, many books and continues to teach and lecture regularly. He and his wife, Deborah, have three daughters and live in St. Louis. And I learned two cool facts. He one time uh, lectured, um, you are preceded by Bono, I think, and after Dr. Doriani lectured, Mel Gibson spoke. And I want to know desperately what you were doing when this happened. And one of his daughters, uh, one of his three daughters won a world championship in Ultimate Frisbee. So he's got, he's got, yeah, mad props. So please give a warm Scots welcome to Dr. Doriani. Never let a friendly person introduce you. You never know what's going to happen. It's good to be here. Uh, I tend to come kind of once a year and, and uh, see some of you, and it's a delight to be in this wonderful school. Today I want to talk about the identity of a Christian. I will be honest and say that I'm partly influenced by the time of year that it is, and that's not just Christmas, it's pre-finals, when we feel that uh, perhaps our identity rests on the question A- a minus, B plus, B, B minus, everything else that is horrible that can happen due to grades. So I want to speak from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, and I want to talk about the question where we find our identity and where the world finds, where our culture finds identity and uh, where we should find our identity and then the challenge of finding our identity in an age that... Um, that's increasingly hostile to Christian conviction. So if you would, uh, listen as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. You can follow along on your phones or whatever device you happen to like. This is Jesus speaking a parable to a crowd that's not entirely friendly. And this is what he says. He says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus concludes, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And the most basic point here is that we don't find our identity in exalting ourselves, and that basic teaching is a challenge in our day, when we largely do exalt ourselves, when we find our identity by, by being different and ordinarily by being better than anyone around us. It is, it is a hard time to figure out who we are. 
It's a hard time to be sure exactly what it means to be a man. Hard time to be exactly sure what it means to be a woman. I have a few um, images here for you. We live uh, in the day of Marvel movies. You like Marvel movies? Wonder Woman, Thor, Ragnarok? Yes? No? I hope you do because we're going to have some pictures of them. So here's Wonder Woman for you. And uh, there's Wonder Woman again. She's about to attack. Go back one to the to coming up. The, there she's about to attack a machine gun nest if you saw the movie. She's got thousands of bullets shooting at her, which she will repulse simply by holding up her arms, which is pretty cool. Notice how her makeup is perfect, even though she's just killed about 500 people. And her hair has, you know, perfect curls. She has massive strength. She doesn't really need biceps. She's like this with full bicep pro profile. And there's nothing there, but she's, she's skinny as a model. She's skinny as a model, and that is what counts. So that's, we're done with, with Wonder Woman. Um, we're not going to show anything for a second. So Wonder Woman is um, a, I, I liked the movie, I did. And I like Marvel movies because they're full of Christ figures, people willing to die for others. And I like them, I really do. But Wonder Woman, I think, is probably part of the um, cultural view that a real woman is magnificently accomplished, not like that, but maybe, you know, a vice president at the age of 34, and three kids, and her hair is always perfect. And after three kids, she is still as skinny as a model, which is pretty awesome. Then on the other hand, for you guys, we have Thor. And, you know, Thor, Thor is uh, bloodied in battle. He looks pretty strong, maybe even real strong. Of course, he has thunderbolt power, which helps him a lot. And now, if you look again, at, this is Thor number two. Thor number two... If you're an athlete, you know that this is a bad picture because he's too skinny in the waist to have any actual useful strength, right? But if you're really an athlete, you've got strength in your upper legs and, you know, your core. And he's got no core. He only has gigantic biceps and useless pecs. But, <laughs> but he does look good. And you're supposed to look like this, guys, even though it's completely useless. Now, he does have a friend who has more core strength, and, <laughs> and that goes all the way down. You know, he's like, he's big all the way, and these are some of the images that we have in our society, and we're, we're done with that. So there are other ideas about how you find your identity. Another idea about how you find your identity is financial. That's a little bit more prominent in the, maybe a lot more prominent, of course, in the real world, and a real man, to stick with men for a minute, a real man finds his identity by uh, getting a good job, slaying dragons, crushing rocks, making deals, and bringing home the bacon so that his wife and children can live in splendid luxury and indolence. Now, the next question is, does any woman today, do many women today actually want their husband to bring home all the bacon so they can gloriously do nothing and just depend on a man? That's a question. Beyond that question, we also have the, the, the challenge, I'm going to say, of travel. And the more you travel, the more you see different economies. I was in Houston not too long ago. And in Houston, they're dependent on the oil industry, right? The oil industry is a funny thing. Here's a picture of the price of, the price of crude oil. You see there, it's, it goes up almost to $130 a barrel in 2012. And it got down a tiny bit below $30 a barrel. Now, and if you live in Houston, if, it, if oil is $80 a barrel, you are doing well. You can be almost grossly incompetent 
if oil is selling for $90 a barrel, you cannot lose money. And you can think to yourself, oil's $90 a barrel, I'm a business success. But hang on, it's going to go not from 90 to 125, all the way down to 29 in like two and a half years. And all of a sudden, business genius wealthy man is a complete moron losing everything. And it has absolutely nothing to do with any skills or abilities you have. If you find your meaning in wealth, you are a slave to that. And I guarantee you, you can't control that. Now, there's another one I'll put up very briefly, and that is copper prices. And you think, okay, that's a lot more stable. But if you're mining copper, notice in 2009, it's only down to $1.40. And over there, it's up to $4.50. The same thing happens. So we don't want to find our identity in income or in looks or in achievement. Now, achievement is the one that's probably more challenging for all of you because achievement is what's making you sweat as you head into finals. You want to do well, that's good. I'm, not spe I'm a professor, I'm not against doing well in your finals. I'm all in favor of it. But I'm not so much in favor of finding your identity in your grades. So we find identity in America largely in, in beauty, largely in achievement. And in that, we're a little bit off track with uh, the way people have done it throughout the ages. And throughout the ages, um, people find out who other people are by asking the question, who are you, what family is your family, and what's your job? So for example, in the Bible, when David kills Goliath, the question goes up quickly, who is this young man, what it, where is he from, and who's, who's his family? And the answer is, this is David, the son of Jesse from Bethlehem, the shepherd. That's how we identify. Or Jesus, who is this? He performs a miracle. Who is this? This is Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth, the carpenter. Later on, he's Jesus from Nazareth, the prophet. So that's how people identify throughout traditional societies throughout the world. What's your town? Who's your daddy? What's your job? In America, we stress, who's, what's your job? And if you're an engineer or a physician then you put that to the forefront because that's important. If you're a tattoo artist, you keep that to yourself most of the time. Although in certain circles, you know, certain concerts, definitely you want to let people know you're a tattoo artist. I'm a baker, I'm a climber. It depends, you, you say that or you don't say that depending on uh, the circle you're in. So we find our identity in our culture in looks, achievement, wealth, traditionally, hometown, family, job. Another way to say it is we find our identity in difference. I am different from you, and sometimes we find it in similarity. In our day right now, we tend to find identity in difference. I am somehow superior most of the time. Everybody has a hometown. Some people, a lot of people come from New York City, which is awesome. I was born in New York City, but I was not born in Manhattan. I was born in Queens. Boo. That's a bad part of New York City to be born in, right? And um, I'm an engineer, but uh, some people engineer ketchup bottles, and other people engineer rockets. And I'm in the military, and I'm an officer in the military, but it's one thing to be a lieutenant, another thing to be a colonel. And so we identify ourselves through superiority. I don't know about you, but some people are proud to be from Georgia, not Mississippi. And other people are glad to be from Mississippi, not Georgia. And some people say, I'm a Democrat, not a Republican. Other people say, I'm a Republican, not a Democrat. And 
We emphasize our tastes, our music, who we like. I'm into Anat Cohen right now. None of you ever heard of her. You'll, one or two of you will look her up, and then you'll say, okay, that's awesome. I like Anat Cohen also. You don't even know if she's a man or woman, but the point is I know who she is, and you don't. And she's a musician, and therefore I have cool friends. I crossed Vermont on a pogo stick. How many of you can say that? I have a daughter who won a world championship in Oakland Frisbee. I'm better than you are. We find our identity in difference slash superiority. On the other hand, some people find their identity in inferiority. I'm the person to whom bad things happen. Life is against me. That's who I am. Nothing goes right for me. I give up on trying to be superior. You know, that's actually shown in the Bible, too. In John chapter 5, Jesus comes to a man who's by a pool, and Jesus comes up to him and asks him the question, would you like to be healed? And you think to yourself, that's got to be the dumbest question in the world. Of course he would like to be healed. In fact, this pool is a healing pool, and people gather around the pool to be healed. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't even say yes. He says, I have no one to help me. Meaning, I'm the guy who's been lying by this pool for 30 years, and I'm going to keep lying by this pool for 30 years, because not only am I crippled, I don't even have any friends. That's who I am. And Jesus says, you know, close enough, and he heals him. Because he doesn't want to leave him in that. We also look for identity um, through our family. And you can say it this way, we find our identity vertically, and horizontally. Horizontally is through difference from our family. Vertically, we say, okay, my skin color, my hair, my religion, my accent is like mom and dad. But sometimes we fall far from the tree, meaning we're very different. There's certain things that don't run in families, like physical disability, like deafness. If you're deaf, your parents can probably hear. And if you're deaf, you're probably the only one in your family who's deaf. If you're a genius, there's a really good chance you're the only genius in your family. A lot of things do not run in families. And so if you don't find your identity vertically through grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, and your siblings, you find it horizontally through people who are somehow or other like you. And you have to go outside to find peers who are like you. There's a man named Andrew Solomon who wrote a book called Far From the Tree, maybe four or five years ago. And uh, in it he says, differentness, deafness, genius, freakish musical skills. Differentness is both a disability because you're unlike anybody else and an identity because you need to affirm it and celebrate it and find it pe people like you. Now Solomon would know because he is probably on five different fronts unique, far from the tree. He's Jewish, not many Jewish people in the world. He is dyslexic, he is a genius, he is gay, and he is massively depressed. I mean, really depressed. So he's got these five ways in which he's different. And when he was a boy, he says, you know, I was the boy who liked pink balloons. I was the boy that played jacks during recess with the girls, except when I was helping teachers clean the blackboard. That's who I was. And I was tormented and mocked. And finally, one of my lesbian teachers came and said to me, you know, Andrew, life will go better if you walk like this, I'm not going to demonstrate, instead of like this. And somebody finally taught him how to negotiate his different, he was different from mom and dad, and somebody horizontally said, I'm going to help you make your way in the world.
Now, that's what people mean sometimes when they talk about um, identity politics. Now, Scripture says we should not find our identity in differentness. It's very tempting. I'm labeling all this. This is our culture. This is the world we live in. This is the, the sea we swim in. We find our identity in uh, being a genius, being uh, a great clarinetist, being whatever it is. I'm different. I have a 4.0. Uh, and the Bible says we, find, we should find our identity in commonality and in unity and in community. And he does this, Jesus does this through the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector says, I'm a sinner like everybody else. The Pharisee says, I'm different. That's my identity. So here's the story, if I can kind of retell it for you for a minute. It's uh, the hour of prayer, and people are going up to the temple to pray. A lot of people went up to the temple to pray. Uh, the hours were 9 and 3. Those were the hours of sacrifice in the temple precincts. People thought correctly that God is um, angry or wrathful towards sin and his justice, and God covers sin. He covers it through sacrifices. We're going to go right after the sacrifices have been offered, and then God will hear our prayer. So we go hear prayer when God is propitious or open to hear us pray. And so we would expect a Pharisee to go up. They're very religious. We're surprised to hear that a tax collector and a Pharisee are going up together. Now they're going with a crowd of people, and the Pharisee scans the crowd, and he sees no one who is better than he is. And the tax collector also scans the crowd and sees no one who is worse than he is. And they begin to pray. The Pharisee prays first. Now we have a translation. He, he prayed uh, by himself. But the truth is the Greek is a little bit ambiguous. And uh, some of you take Greek, and so you can uh, talk to your professor about this. It's not entirely clear whether we should translate it that he prays by himself or to himself or about himself. All three actually make sense. That's why the translation's a little bit uncertain. So he does pray by himself. He's standing over here, away from everybody else. He doesn't want to be contaminated by those sinners, so he stands off to the side, praying about how superior he is to everybody else. But he's also praying about himself. He tells God how great he is. He says, God, would you take a look at me? I fast twice a week. I tithe every last thing I get. Can I just tell you, if I fasted twice a week, I would find a way to work it into conversations. The idea was, it's the, the idea was not weight control. The idea was, I am so awesome that for two entire days every week, I am sustained by the strength of prayer. I don't even need to eat. That's how awesome I am. And he tithes every last thing he gets, which means he tithes all of his income and everything he buys with his income in case the person who sold the wheat or the coat to him didn't tithe it. So he double tithes. So he's very proud. He tells God how great he is. So he prays by himself. He prays about himself. But it also sounds like maybe he prays to himself because does he really pray? And what does he do? He, he tells God how great, he doesn't, how great he is. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't praise God. He says, well, he, prays, he says, God, I praise you that I am so great. Uh, are you really praising God when you say that? So he sees himself as better. He says specifically, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men, adulterers, 
robbers, evildoers. Here's a case in point, the tax collector right over there. Now, the Bible says, James says, Scripture's a mirror, and we have to ask ourselves if we are see ourselves here at all. You know, um, Bernard of Clairvaux, great theologian, gave us some hymns that we still sing, said, uh, the Pharisee gives thanks to God, not that he is good, but that he is different. Not so much because of his virtues, but because of the vices he sees in others. And C.S. Lewis commented about it this way. He said, pride, this is pride on display, pride gets no pleasure in having something. It takes pleasure in having more than others do. Pride does not take pleasure in strength. It takes pleasure in thinking, I am stronger than you are. Pride does not take pleasure in knowledge. It takes pleasure in feeling, I know more than you do. Miroslav Volf said people find their identity through rivalry. We exclude the enemy, the tax collector, from the circle of humanity and we exclude ourselves from the circle of sinners. I think that's right. Now we may say to ourselves, I would never pray this way. I would never pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, I'm better than other people. But have you ever heard, maybe it isn't, maybe it it isn't as common today, but have you ever heard anybody pray or say, there but for the grace of God go I? Have you heard that phrase? No? That's basically saying I'm thankful that I'm not like other people. I'm thankful that I'm better than other people. So this is not just a story about people long ago. I'm telling you this story because it's about the way people find their identity. We find our identity in our superiority. We have our ways today. Um, Thank you for saying, thank you. It makes me feel awesome that I spoke after Bono. You want to know the story, the true story? The true story is it was a series, and Bono spoke in March. I spoke in April, and Mel Gibson spoke in May. So I didn't actually meet them. So it's not nearly as awesome, is it? But on the other hand, my daughter didn't just win the world championship. She won six national championships also. That's pretty cool. Therefore, I'm an awesome person. The problem is that if you find your identity, your meaning in life, you're finding it in things that are fleeting. If you find it in wealth, just remember those oil prices and those copper prices. And by the way, Mel Gibson is now an outcast, so it's actually not awesome that I spoke before Mel Gibson because he's an anti-Semitic bigot who gets drunk all the time and punches reporters. So we should have stricken that. It doesn't do me any good anymore. So where do we find our identity? That's the question. Well, the answer, again, is not in our performance. So you guys are 19 to 22 years old. I'm going to tell you a story about when I was 24. When I was 24 years old, I was a seminary student. And in my little home church, about 200 people, my seminary church, the pastor invited me to give a sermon one week. We want you to preach. It was very exciting because there were several professors of the seminary that went to that church and a bunch of seminary students, and I was chosen. How magnificent that I was chosen. And I worked hard, and I was full of enthusiasm, and I preached my sermon. Don't get mad. I'm going to say two things. The first one will offend you. The second will not. Um, the first thing that happened after the sermon is a very happy person a very positive person came up to me, I'm 24 years old, and said, Dan, that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. 
wow. And then a little while later, somebody else came up and said, that sermon was a stench in the nostrils of God. That's a quote, I remember it. It's the kind of thing you remember. I have given thanks for that moment innumerable times since then. I'm the same person. I preached the same sermon. To one person, that sermon was fantastic. To another, it was a stench in the nostrils of God. The lesson is, don't let people's fleeting opinions define who you are. Don't get high when somebody says you're the best. Don't get low when somebody tells you you're a stench in the nostrils of God. Okay, so we have a sinner, the tax collector, and we have a Pharisee. We've got to turn to the, to the sinner next. So the, the sinner's the opposite. The sinner's the opposite of the, of the Pharisee. The, the Pharisee stands close up front. The tax collector stands far away in the back. Uh, the Pharisee congratulates himself. The tax collector condemns himself. The Pharisee criticizes others. The tax collector criticizes himself. The Pharisee stands and vaunts himself before God. The tax collector won't even lift his eyes and beats his breast in a universal sign of sorrow and repentance. And he says the words, God have mercy on me, our translation says, a sinner. The original says, the sinner. Like, I don't know a bigger sinner than myself. I stand before you pleading for mercy. And the word he uses for mercy is instructive too. Um, the most common word for mercy in the Bible is, help me. You know, you've got a blind person who comes to Jesus, have mercy on me, that is to say, heal me. That's generically, God, do something kind to me. Show me favor. That's not the word he uses here. The, the word he uses here is the specific word, meaning show me the mercy that forgives me of my sins. Cover my sins. Be propitious to me. Accept a propitiatory, sacrificial offering that cleanses me from my sin. Now, here's an important point. If we don't find our identity and our achievement, it doesn't mean achievement is worthless. The truth of the matter is God says you find your identity in Christ's achievement given to you. I had a conversation with a man in his middle years. He said, explain the atonement to me. He hadn't been to church in like 30 years. He said, explain the atonement to me. I don't get it. What is, what is it with Jesus offering himself for us? I said, Joe, not his name. I said, Joe, I know you want to be a good person. Yes, I do. I try to be a good person. I know you fall short at times. Yes, I do. I said, Jesus did every good thing you ever wanted to do, and he counts it as if you did it. Achievement counts, but what really counts is Christ's achievement for you and finding your identity there, not in our partial achievements. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, I don't have time for it. I'm going to mention one more thing, and I'm going to say it as fast as I can because I know classes start soon. As much as we want to rest there, I feel like I have to just give you a little, uh, put a little splinter in your hand to bother you so you can think about it, because I can't develop it, but it's this. As soon as we establish I'm not going to be like the culture and find my identity achievement, I'm going to find it in Christ, we go back out to the culture. And the culture is going to try to take that away from us in various ways. And one of the ways, Peter says, is by telling you you don't quite fit here. 
Peter calls believers two things, calls them many things, but he calls them aliens and strangers, or aliens and exiles. They're two different words. One means like somebody who visits a country for, you know, three weeks, six weeks, you're in, you're out, you know the whole time, I don't get the customs, I don't get the language, I don't fit here. He says, okay, that's how we feel sometimes. And other times we feel like the other word means a long-term resident, and even though you've been there five years or seven years and you have friends, you're really, you know, you're not really one of us. You're really not. Now go back to movies. Sometimes we go to movies and we think, that's awesome, there's a lot of Christian values in this, whoever made this movie, you know, had some Judeo-Christian heritage, maybe he's a Christian writer going here. Other times we watch a movie and we think to ourselves, who on earth thought this was entertaining? Why, why does this comedian think that this degrading humor that degrades everybody in sight is entertaining? We don't fit. And that, that sense of not fitting is something that is inevitable, and it's something that Christ experienced first. Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere even to lay his head. He was the ultimate outcast, literally cast out of the city, and he loves you, he calls you his own, he's redeemed you because you have infinite value, not because of what you achieve, but because who you are, first of all, in God's creation, creating God's image, second, through union with him, and so accept this fact, accept this fact, you won't always feel like you belong. And that can make you question your identity. So I label it, I ask you to ponder it, and to find who you are, as you know, not in what you achieve, not in your grades, not in your money, but in your creation in God's image, and your redemption through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for these uh, students, these young men and women. I, I pray for them as they live in a culture that is going to push them away from the healing thoughts, the healing truths about them, about this world. I pray that you would send them out in this day and when they graduate in fullness of assurance of their worth, of their excellence that is found in you, O Lord, who has loved them and kept them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to your classes. Thanks.